Our subject this afternoon, the title is How the 18th and 19th Centuries Teach Us That Only the Gospel Can Make Society Improve. I want to be clear at the very beginning that I'm not preaching a social gospel this afternoon, but I am emphasizing the social benefits of true Christianity. And um, perhaps we'll begin with a, a saying of our good friend, Mr. Wesley. He said this, and I always find this very encouraging. Perhaps when there is least appearance, a flame will suddenly break forth and you shall see the day of his power. Well, that's what we pray for today. It seems as if there is the very least of appearances, but when we least expect God, the sovereign God, suddenly breaks forth with the day of his power. And we're going to say a few things uh, in regard to that period of time to begin with as we move through the, the centuries, as it were, 18th and 19th centuries. And um, on the one hand, we are saying that blessing and revival and so on is entirely dependent on the power of God. But at the same time, God requires of us to work uh, and to labor. And you see the unfolding purposes of God in this story. You, you, you go back beyond the 1730s when the revival did break forth. And you go back and you see various things. Fifty years before, we know that the kings of England, Charles II and James II, were doing everything in their scheming power to introduce a, a form, we might say, vigorous form of Roman Catholicism into England, reintroduce it, which would have completely snuffed out all gospel light. Who knows for how long uh, that would have lasted. But God raised up William of Orange, for one, uh, who dealt with that situation and gave great freedom, certainly, to nonconformists, as so many of us here are, and in a sense paved the way for Mr. Wesley and Mr. Whitfield and the others to be able freely to go out into the fields, the highways and byways of this land and preach the gospel long before perhaps people realized what was happening. God was at work, and God always is at work. And we know also, I think this is encouraging for us, at that same time, let's say, the 1690s, there were rising up in the land little, say, little groups, gatherings of people who realised they weren't being fed uh, in the churches, many of them anyway, and they were forming themselves into what they called societies, meeting on the weeknights. They gathered around some faithful preacher and they nourished their souls. And God, again, under the surface, was preparing for the great revival that was to come. Um, Mr. Wesley went on to say, when the revival did come, it's not the work of man that has lately appeared. All who calmly observe it must say, this is the Lord's doing and is marvellous in our eyes. But there was things going on under the surface. But let us just remind ourselves of how bad the times were in the 1730s. 
you're probably familiar, I'm sure you are, with Hogarth's famous cartoons. And uh, two of them particularly stand out. The Sleeping Congregation is one of them. You know, there's the old parson with his little piece of a note here, you know. And he's just about seeing it. And he's labouring on while all the congregation are fast asleep. Well, um, that was one view of the church at that time and may it never be said uh, of us and so on. And the other picture that he portrayed, as it were, a cartoon he made, uh, was of Jin Ro. And you've probably seen it. And how accurate that was for that day. And sadly, it's becoming a, a picture that you could use in the same day. We all know about the gangs of youths that are molesting our cities. It was the same then. You'll have heard of the Mohawks Club. I hope nobody here is in it. You had to get in it by squeezing a woman's nose into the flat of her face. Terrible violence, terrible things were going on. We know about the bear baiting and the cockfighting and the bear fist wrestling. The society was brutalized and getting worse by the minute. We see it going on around us. These are the days in which we live. One commentator said this, it is said that zeal for godliness looks today as odd as a man who wears the clothes of his great-grandfather. Well, again, it's all up to date. The Archbishop at that time, Butler, said, It is, I know not how, to be taken for granted by many persons that Christianity is not so much a subject of inquiry, but that is now, it is now at length discovered to be fictitious, and accordingly they treat it in this present age as if that were an agreed point amongst all people of discernment. Well, again, it's the same, the same picture. You, you may know this also, I mustn't paint this picture too long, but Sir William Blackstone decided he would go around, he was a lawyer, uh, illegal man, he would go around all the churches in the city of London, I imagine these were Paris churches, and he would listen to what the preacher had to say. And he did that, and he came back with this uh, comment that he, from what he had heard, it couldn't be told in many of these churches whether the preacher was a follower of Confucius, Mohammed, or Christ. It was so very, it was so absolutely, you know, useless really. Well, that was going on. We know that the dissenting churches, some of them were good, but many of them fallen into Unitarianism, others have fallen into Arianism. Once French observer said, uh, observing and knowing something about the English Parliament, that no more than four or five members of the Parliament actually went to church. Not to say they were believers, but they had, for only four or five actually had any adherence to any church. It was a clever age in many respects. There were all sorts of brilliant people around, but the things of God were in a very poor state in this land. But then, God began to work. And we know about Whitfield and Wesley and so on. But there were lots of others. Thompson of Cornwall, he came, he said, to a saving knowledge of Christ in 1732 in, as he put it, unassisted solitude. Nobody said it, reading the Bible. 
God was beginning below the surface to move. And we pray for that today. Grimshaw of Howarth, you'll have heard of him. Similar situation. Um, other people that are not so well known. Uh, Jones of Southwark, Crook of Hunslet. Uh, William Remain was another who was at... Um, Oxford University at the same time as Wesley and Whitfield, but he never knew them, never met them even. But God worked in, uh, his, uh, in his heart. So this is something of the background. But then God raised up these two men, Whitfield and Wesley. I'm not going to say much about them, but I want to give them the credit where it's due. It's what God can do with single individuals. And... Um, so people commented. Now, I'm going to give you some quotes from Victorian writers who knew the importance of the subject we're talking about now. That is the impact of Christianity on our society in those two centuries and, and even beyond. Um, for instance, Leslie Stephen, uh, he had a son who was an atheist, but his father wasn't. The, the father said this, he described Wesley as the greatest captain of men of his century. A man of God, the greatest man of that century. Macaulay, you've heard of him. Um, he said, writing in his history of England, those who fail to see that among the events which fundamentally determined that the, hist the history of the rise of Methodism he said, anybody that doesn't recognise in that Wesley's genius for government is, is no less inferior than Cardinal Richelieu. We don't like him, but he was a genius as far as government went. Southey said this, Wesley was the most influential mind of the last century. The man who will have produced the greatest effects centuries, perhaps millenniums after. In the present race of men shall so long, as, as, as the present race of men shall so longer continue. Well, these men recognized that it was men of God. God raised up these individuals to change the face of this country. Now they didn't do it alone. And this is where we take note. Wesley himself trained up in the region of eight hundred preachers, eight hundred to go around the country, all over England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, and to preach. They had a method. They only stayed in one place for six or eight weeks. Imagine the sacrifice of that. Say you've got a wife and family. Where did you live in that time? They billeted you on one of the members of the church. So you have a family, you have a preacher there for six or eight weeks, and he goes around. Great effort was put into all this. And, um, of course, these preachers going around. You, you can still read some of their sermons, you know. You have to go to the John Rylands Library in Manchester, but the handwritten sermons of some of these men are still in existence. And stirring stuff it is. Spurgeon said, when he got downhearted, he read the lives of these Methodist preachers. And uh, Joseph Parker, the Congregationalist, said... I thank God for the great Methodist pulpit. When I'm outworn and helpless, I take down a volume of the lives of the early Methodist preachers and so I'm inspired and encouraged. I recommend you read them yourself. They are. He divided the country up. This wasn't random. 
25 different circuits manned by 71 preachers who rotated, as we said. And um, that's what they did. And uh, later they lengthened the time of their stays, but at first they were on the move all the time. Great swathes of literature were produced, tracts, all kinds of religious literature flooded the country. You know that Wesley himself traveled 2,000, 250,000, I should say, miles in the course of his ministry. He was a great walker. He was a great rider on horseback. He rode, as he got a bit older, in a carriage. You say, my word, he must have looked a grand fellow riding round in his carriage. But what his carriage was, was a mobile workshop and library. What do I mean? He had one door of the carriage nailed up, shelves put along that side with his books on, and then the other side was a desk, and there, as he travelled up and down the length, he was working. He, he, um, he said that he preached, it was said that he preached 40,000 times, 40,000 sermons. In the course of his travelling, of course, uh, he produced books, 230 original Christian books, large and small. Uh, he he uh, condensed 50 of the great Christian classics, uh, massive great big volumes going this wide and wider, uh, and so on. Um, on the work all the time, on the job all the time. He said this, leisure and I have taken leave of one another. And then he said, though I am always in haste, I am never in a hurry. He had everything planned out. He knew what he was doing. Now, bear with me. I'll give you a week out of his diary. This should challenge us, you know. These men, yes, it was all via the Spirit of God. Nothing could have happened without that. But these men gave themselves to the evangelizing of a country that was in a terrible state. But here's a week in the life of Wesley. And when he was 74 years old, that's the same age as I am now, and I don't know, I think I could do it, but this was out of the diary. Friday, 9th of May, rose, rode rather, rode to Osmotherley. He's in Yorkshire. 15 miles on to Malton, suffering at intervals from ague. He preaches. Then, having heard that one Mr. Ritchie was ill, he set out after the service and reached Otley, 48 miles away, at 4, four o'clock on the Saturday morning. Note that four o'clock in the morning is visiting the sick man. After seeing the invalid, he then rode back to Malton, having, he said, ridden between 190 miles. He rested for an hour, then rode 22 miles to Scarborough and preached there in the evening. On Sunday morning, he woke shaking with fever, he says. He lay between blankets, drinks hot lemonade, perspires, sleeps for half an hour, then gets up and starts preaching. After this, he meets the society. That's the Methodist society. On Monday, he's preaching in Bridlington. Tuesday, he's preaching in Beverly. In the morning at Hull and, 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 and Hull at night, having ridden 36 miles that day. On Wednesday, he rides 26 miles to Pocklington, preaches, rides 12 miles further on to York and preaches again. He admits he feels out of order and would gladly rest. 
but he was expected at Tadcaster. So he starts off at 9 a.m. on the Thursday in a chaise, you know, a carriage, which after a while breaks down. So he borrows a lively horse whose movements, he said, electrified him and he feels better. He preaches and the, at the same night he returns 12 miles back to, uh, to York and the next day he took the diligence, that's a, a long distance coach, uh, and returned to London. Um, such was his weekly schedule, age 74. So these men challenge us in the way that we use our time. Now one of the great effects on uh, Wesley's ministry was of course the famous book by Jonathan Edwards, a uh, narrative of surprising conversions going taking place over in America there. And it's this uh, book that really challenged it and, and a great deal of other people at that same time. Wesley read the book while he was walking, mind you, walking from London to Oxford. So as he walked that distance, he was reading narrative of surprising conversions. Uh, but also, Edwards wrote another famous, well, it wasn't a book, of course, it was a famous sermon. And you may have heard the title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And those of you who know something about it, will recall that in that sermon he, he compares the human condition to that of a spider dangling by its web over a hot fire. Imagine that, the little thread separating the little creature from the flames. And of course, he then went on to describe that as man's condition hanging over the flames of hell. Now, many people since then of course, have criticised that sermon and said, you know, this is, this is talk that is over, over and above the call of duty, as it were. This is not uh, what we want to do these days. But these people who say that are not really understanding what, what Edwards was really saying. And one of the things he was saying is this. All of us, all men, all women, all people, all human beings are accountable in the sight of God. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of God, uh, seat of Christ, and we shall have to give an account. Now that's what he was saying. He was talking about this. The other side, you might say, of freedom is responsibility. The flip side, as some people say. The other side of the record, or the other side of the coin. Uh, responsibility uh, comes uh, under this, uh, you know, fact that accountability, responsibility, accountability, the other side of freedom and true liberty. And we're talking about liberties in this subject today that we are losing. Where you have atheism, you don't have liberty, do you? If you live in China today, you don't have liberty. If you live in Korea today, you don't have liberty. If we take away God and our accountability to him, who are we accountable to? Ah, oh, to man, some despot or other, some uh, political system. And so in all these sermons and so on, 
you see not only the warning of our soul and the dangers they're in if we despise the gospel of grace and we turn from God, but they are the very foundations, these things of our civil liberties. Then again, when you talk about this revival of that period and other revivals, it does have a tremendous changing effect, beneficially changing effect, on the people who respond to that gospel message. There are these famous words by Canon Overton. I've read them hundreds of times in the course of my ministry. If you've heard them before, I apologize, but they're worth repeating. He said, this is the effect of the revival preaching, that which enabled a man to abandon the cherished habits of a lifetime and go already, go already to spend and be spent in his master's service, which nerved him to overcome the natural fear of death and indeed to welcome the last enemy as his best friend who would introduce him to the better land he had long been living for, which made the selfish man self-denying and the discontented happy, the worldling spiritually minded, the drunkard sober, the sensual chaste, the liar truthful, the thief honest, the proud humbly, the thriftless thrifty, and the godless godly. Don't we want that for today? It touches every button, it strikes every nerve. What else in this modern world can do that? It is the gospel of this book. And that is what we're entrusted with. That's what's being spoken about today. And then... Even people who weren't particularly godly noticed this. I quote now from Robert Southey. He wrote a biography of Wesley. It wasn't too sympathetic, but he did say this. He said, he compared um, Wesley's influence in England with his rationalistic counterpart uh, in France, Voltaire. Voltaire, more or less an atheist, you may say. This is what he said. While one, i.e. Wesley and Whitfield, set mighty principles at work in England, the other, Voltaire, scattered the seeds of immorality and unbelief in France, which brought down the whole fabric of government, overturned her altars, subverted her throne, and carried guilt, devastation, and misery into every part of the country. Well, that's what happened in France while things were being blessed here in England. But these are the alternatives. This, these are the things that people want to push us down the, the, the area or the way of Voltaire. And we, the, another French writer that's often quoted is Halliby. He, he says that uh, Wesley saved England from a French-style revolution. That's, that's well known. And the effect of his ministry, of course, it, it almost comes to the present day. I tell you, I'm 74, so I, I remember it. <laughs> but it's not really here now. Uh, and even modern Methodism, I say it in this uh, free Methodist chapel, good job you are free. But the main line is nothing like, is it? it's far, far, far removed from the way that it began. So we may say that. Now, today is so-called secularists and uh, 
secular humanists and all those sort of people. They've got this totally mistaken, as a, a mild way of saying it, idea that you can have society as we have had it over many, many generations, continuing without any reference to God. That's what they think. You don't need God to have a free society or a just society or a prosperous society. You may say that. They don't realise what the foundations have been and what the source and root of it all is. I'll give you another historical um, illustration. We know about the Industrial Revolution and we, we know that it uh, began in the area of Shropshire, in the area now called Iron Bridge. Now, in one sense, that's a picture of uh, society. In that area, people came for work in the new industries, foundries and so on, and they came from the little villages where everybody knew each other, where the village church was there in the centre and Christianity, even though it was a mild or even nominal form, held things together. But when they got into this new, these new towns of Shropshire, all moral restraints were lifted. Nobody knew them. They were strangers. And the whole thing, this is historically true, uh, sank into drunkenness and immorality and crime and all manner of ills. And to such an extent that it was said that that... Uh, beginnings of the Industrial Revolution and that it would have completely collapsed. It would never have really got off the ground. We would never have had an Industrial Revolution. But for the fact that these preachers that we're talking about now moved into the area, of course the most well-known of them was the famous John Fletcher. His church stood right in the middle of it. He was surrounded by it. But through the ministries of men like that, these new little communities formed themselves, were welded, as it were, stuck together by the principles of the gospel and the principles, the foundations of this book, the Bible. That's what happened. And, and, and you know that it, it gave rise, that same period, coming away from Shropshire now, but speaking generally again, you have all these saints, you may say, uh, that uh, sought to... Uh, labour with all their might in, in, the, in the new world that was now emerging. Uh, you, you have uh, names like Hannah Moore, Sunday schools. Um, she set up uh, friendly societies because people suddenly found themselves, if they were ill, they had no income. All sorts of very practical things like that. And then you get a whole burst of uh, activities uh, in, this, uh, in this sort of realm. Now, um, I'm to keep my eye on the clock, but uh, at this period, say about 1770, you have the, uh, the Religious Tracts Society, starting off in the 1790s. And then you have the Naval and Military Bible Society, the British and Foreign Bible Society. The, the Missionary Societies all start to come to the fore at this time. London Missionary Society and so on. And um, you have William Wilberforce coming into the scene with the anti-slavery movement and all that. You have William Carey going to India. I don't want to broaden the picture too far, 
But uh, it's worth studying what Carey achieved in India. Some people say he was the making of modern India. Uh, he, he lifted that uh, country out of the darkness of paganism and unbelief. It's an amazing and thrilling story. And um, that's what uh, was going on as a, as a fruit of this uh, revival. You, you get the Clapham sect. Uh, that sounds like some strange group of people, but they, they were prominent people, wealthy people in many respects, members of parliament, some of them were, who just had the spiritual well-being uh, at their heart. Here's one of them, Henry Thornton. He was in parliament. Imagine this happening today. Henry Thornton just recording in his uh, journal uh, events in parliament. He said this, I voted today so that if my master had come again at that moment, I might have been able to give a good account of my stewardship. Now, if all our MPs were thinking like that, what a transformation that would bring to our nation. Uh, what about the Archbishop of Canterbury? You may say, what about, I'm not going to talk about him. But in those days, they actually had an evangelical, uh, uh, his name was John Sumner. And um, this, this is what he said. The divine root from which all benevolence, on all, sorry, all, the divine root from which all benevolent conduct springs is here. The divine root from which all benevolent conduct, conduct springs. Well, these were the sort of people that were there. And, um, oh, well, the areas that they worked in, the areas, I mean, you may, I don't know if there's any seamen here, or sea women, I don't know whether there are such things. <laughs> but uh, Agnes Weston, if you got them all to sign the pledge, you've heard of drunken sailors, well, she, she went into that area and started to make the gospel known, uh, Agnes Weston's medal. Um, you even get the RSPCA beginning. Now, now they're a PC organisation, it would seem. But in the first place, they were founded by Christian people. We forget that. Um, you, you, you have um, Josephine Butler. She was a wife of one of the clergymen of that time. She devoted herself to the case of wayward girls, as she put it. She, she, they went out to the prostitutes and so on. A, a, a fellow by the name of Baptist Noel, he started having uh, evangelistic meetings in London at midnight. Think of that. Revolutionary, really. Midnight, in which he, he was looking at young men who came out uh, of the music halls and the dance halls and places like that and, and sought to reach them and said that they were really, the way they were living their lives, the root the cause of so much of the social evils that were prevalent in London at that time. You, you get the birth of the temperance movement with uh, Joseph Livesey and people like that. You even get the coffee house movements, trying to get people to drink coffee instead of whiskey or whatever. Uh, they, they looked into everything. Time fails me to tell of the ragged school movements coming out to the, um, to, to the children and trying to lift them and so on. Children's homes are springing up all over the place. Uh, now, bear with me. 
I, I've got a list of about that long of some of these things that uh, were founded. The National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, the Children's County Holiday Fund, the Royal National Institute for the Blind, the Boys Brigade, the Needlewoman's Institute, Mission to Cab Drivers, Charity Organisation Society, the Children's Aid Society, the Children's League of Pity, the Children's Special Service Mission, the Church Army, the Salvation Army, the Church Penitentiary Association, the Society for the Welfare of City Work Girls, the Medical Mission Convalescent Homes, the Society for the Employment of Cripples, the Invalid Children's Aid Society, the Shaftesbury Society, the Society for the Care of the Deaf, Flower and Letter Missions, Homes for Working Boys, Railway Missions, the Royal Society for Discharged Prisoners, the Home for Asiatic Sailors, the Deaf and Dumb Society, the Mission to the Jews, the National Vigilance Association, I don't know what that was like, but uh, the National Vigilance Association, uh, Navy Missions, British Sailors Society, the Mission to Seamen, Sailors Rest Homes, the Young Women's Help Society, Dr. Bernardo's Home, George Muller's Homes, Methodist Children's Homes, etc., etc. The activity, the, 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 what these people did, General Booth had him storm the forts of darkness and bring them down. Well, I like that. Storm the forts of darkness, bring them down. The preaching of the gospel and all these things that come out of it. The amount of literature that was circulated was phenomenal. The quiver, the leisure hour, the Sunday at home, good works, boys on paper, the war cry, Spurgeon sermons. All these things were being constantly distributed and made known. Massive efforts to build churches and so on. Um, I, I, won't, I won't go into all that, but all those uh, reforms by Lord Shaftesbury and people of that nature could come into this. Even Prince Albert, the Queen's uh, husband, he was involved in all, in all this. A, a, an interesting one comes from Mrs. Sidney Webb. Now, she was one of the foremost people in the Labour Party. This is not a political statement, certainly I'm not advocating the Labour Party, but uh, she was one of the foundations at the beginning of it anyway. Also, she was one of the founders of the London School of Economics. They're always very superstitious, not superstitious, suspicious when they say anything. We don't think it's going to be good. But what she did, she went to spend some time living in a Lancashire town, a small Lancashire mill town. And this is what she said. Living with these people has given me insight into higher working class life with its charm of direct thinking, honest work and warm feeling. And above all, this is the point, and above all, taught me the real part religion had in the making of these people and of dissent as teaching them the art of self-government or rather serving as a means to develop their capacity for it. These are far-reaching effects going right into every nook and cranny of society. Wesley early on said this, if you therefore do not spend your money in doing good to others, you must spend it to the hurt of yourself. If you don't spend your money in doing good to others, you spend it doing hurt to yourself. How far, far removed from the atmosphere of today. 
Well, I'm drawing to a close, really, but I've just got so many other things I could tell you. Uh, what about George Orwell? We don't often quote him in Christian circles, but he's under attack from the woke people today. So I thought, well, I'll give him a good plug. And um, he said this, an imaginary foreign observer would certainly be struck. This is coming to Britain in the 1930s, say that. An imaginary foreign observer would certainly be struck by the gentleness, by the orderly behavior of English crowds, the lack of pushing and quarreling, and except for certain well-defined areas in half a dozen big towns, there is very little crime or violence. Well, what a testimony. How different, how far, far, far removed uh, are we now? So these are the things that we're fighting for. This is the truth of the gospel as contained here in this book, the only gospel. These are the fruits of faith in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Somebody else put it like this. Although exact measurements are impossible, it is probable that never before Christianity displayed in Western Europe, this is writing of the 18th, 19th century. Um, I better read it again. Although exact measurements are impossible, it is probable that never before Christianity displayed in Western Europe such abounding vitality and has been so potent in modifying and molding the cultures in which it has been set. These are priceless things. We have inherited them. We know about them. And what a tragedy that so many people don't know anything about it. They don't know the Saviour who alone to know is life eternal. They don't know the vitalizing, the vitality that comes from knowing him. They don't know all the superabounding goodness and all the blessed things that come out of a Christian na nation that we foolishly, sinfully, squandering, throwing away the rate of knots. So this is something in brief of our inheritance. It is indeed a priceless heritage and worth our fighting for and praying for with all our might and main. God bless each one. Amen. Amen.